In verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember when ketchup was only in glass bottles? And what a pain that was. Back before you could like shake it all to the end like you can with those little squeeze tops because it's not all going to come out. And before you could give it a squeeze to get it up there, you'd kind of tap, 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 nothing coming, nothing coming, and then all over the place. There's even, I remember seeing in a movie, they had a little saying. They said, shake and shake the ketchup bottle, none will come, and then a lottle. Those of you that are too young to remember that, your life is made much simpler with new technology. There's a couple things you should really be thankful. One is for the remote control, because when I was a kid, we were the remote control. My friend Mark, he always used to say, I'm not going to use the remotes. I'm going to throw them away. My kids, are, they got to do what I did. <laughs> That's the, the, one of the family chores. And the other thing is the plastic ketchup bottle. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that ketchup bottle is kind of a lot of what, like what Jesus says. It's, it's, it's not yet. Nothing's coming. Nothing's coming. Nothing's coming. Boom, it's here. And that's what the return of Christ is going to be like, which is really the context that we find ourselves in in this passage, is it's here. But, you know, it's it's amazing to me, as we look at chapter 25, and and I know that we, we spent a decent amount of time in the first parable that Jesus told last week, but I also want to recognize that all these things are together. Because they, they identify different aspects of the Christian life, different attributes of Christians as they live out their life in Christ. And it really, as we pointed to a little bit last week also, it really is not limited to that time of trouble that the context of Matthew brings us up to at that point. In other words, these are attributes that are going to be in the believer's lives in the end times events, no doubt. But they're also attributes that are in our lives in every time period as we strive to follow Christ. And that's what I want to look at. As we look at these three different parables, we see that there's three attributes that Christ sees within His followers. In fact, there are attributes that, as we look at each parable, if you don't have these attributes, you're not His follower. 
Because as we get to a lot, at the end of a lot of these things, the one we looked at last week, they were shut out of the wedding feast. The ones that weren't waiting for His return were not part of the wedding celebration. They were, they were left out. When we look at this one this week with the, the servants that we're looking at, and when we get to the end, same thing. This, the last servant is cast out into outer darkness. And then, of course, when we get into the judgment of the nations, in the last part of the chapter where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, at the end, the people with these attributes go on into the kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and those without these attributes go off into an eternity without Christ. So these are attributes that necessarily are part of the Christian life, so much so that if they're not part of our life, they really identify us as being not genuine in our faith. So as we look at that here this morning, we recognize that Jesus Christ in our life is going to change us. In Corinthians, it says that if any man is in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's just an impossibility to think that our life will go on as it always had when the Holy Spirit moves in. In Galatians chapter 5, it gives a list of the different things that the Spirit will produce in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In James chapter 2, he goes so far as to say that if our faith does not have ways that it manifests itself in our life, then our faith is not real. In James chapter 2, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. This is his response to that statement. So somebody makes the statement, You have faith, but I have works. His response to that statement is, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so faith and works are really uh, inseparable in that sense. Now, there's a very important distinction to make, because if we try to get to God through our works, we will fail. The Bible makes it very clear that we're saved only by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. But when we come to that point of faith, we put our faith in Him, that changes our life. Faith is not just a mere acceptance of facts or details. It's a, it's a jumping in with both feet. It's, a, it's attaching yourself to that, attaching yourself to Him. It's becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul would write to the Thessalonians in the first book, and he would tell them this, you tell me, you know what, I, I know that you've been chosen by God. And the reason I know that you've been chosen by God is because I've seen it. I can see it in your life. And he begins to list the changes that it made in their life. Well, right before that, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he gives a summary of it. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think that that statement right there, the things that he had seen in their life, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope, I think that that really provides a nice outline for us for this passage that we're going through in Matthew chapter 25. Because as we looked at it last week, the message in that parable was that they needed to be waiting They needed to be anticipating the return of Christ. There you see the patience of hope that he talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. And that's what as we look at the attributes of a Christian, the first one that we see in this passage taught in that first parable that we studied last week is the idea of waiting. Waiting. That's where the, the patience of hope comes in. Now in the other two that we see, we're also going to see, I think, the work of faith and the labor of love. And so Jesus taught us last week that His people... 
his people were going to be identified uh, with this anticipation as being waiting, looking forward to the return of Christ. You know, when Jesus first left, he told his disciples, I'm going away and you're going to come be with me later. And they said, we don't know where you're going. And they were disturbed. And they said, how can, how can we know the way? And that's when he said, I am the way. But they're disturbed about it and he gives them this promise. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. From that moment, from that moment, Christians have been anxiously waiting his return and looking forward to it. That spells out the desire that we talked about last week. Just as married couples long to be together as, as engaged couples, so look forward to the time when they can be together all the time. And that is just a natural reaction for a Christian to be waiting and anticipating the arrival of Jesus Christ. But let's go into this parable that we've just read this morning. The parable that we read this morning, if the first one's message is to be waiting, the second one's message is to be working. Is to be working. We're not supposed to. The idea of waiting for Christ is not the idea of going out on a mountaintop somewhere and just watching the sky. It's about being ready for His return. And being ready takes some doing. In fact, to kind of prove this point, if we think back into Matthew chapter 24, where He's telling them, always be ready. And then in his, in his message to them to always be ready, what does he tell them? Two people, two men will be out in the field and one will be taken and the other one will be left. You see, the one taken is out working in the field, same as the one that's left. But the point is, he's not idle. He's not just sitting around waiting and he's taken. It says the same thing about the women. Two, two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. And so it's not saying in order for you to get taken, you need to be standing there looking up at the sky at the right time of day when he happens to return. In fact, he says, don't waste your time doing that because when I return, it's going to be like lightning that strikes in the east and you see it from the west. You can't miss it. But rather, what does it mean to be ready? It means to be not only waiting, but as we're anxiously waiting, we need to be working. And that's what this parable is about. He compares his kingdom. He says it's like this. He says it's like a man who's going to travel. And he's going somewhere. And that's obviously referring to Jesus. Jesus is about to head up to be with his Father in heaven. Man goes on a journey. And he takes his stewards, his slaves is actually the words. We're doulos. It's a main word in the Bible used for a bond slave. And he says that he entrusted them with his property. And he's going to leave and he's going to be gone for a while. But at some point, he's going to come back. And the whole point of the parable is simply this. What did you do with what I left you? The things that I entrusted to you, what did you do with them in my absence? What do you have to show for that in a return? Now, talents, it literally meant it was a... Uh, a weight, a weight of gold, a weight of silver. It was how they measured their that kind of money in that day. It didn't mean talent like we think of talent, like abilities. But you know what? The concept encompasses all of it. Jesus Christ has left us here and He's left us with, with ability. We see that within the passage too because it says that He taken and He gave to each servant according to His abilities. And so one servant was trusted with more. He leaves with him five, with another one, two, with another one, one. And he's not disparaging them. He's not criticizing them. He just knows them intimately and knows that with each one what they can handle. And he doesn't want, he doesn't put more responsibility on them than they can handle. And he doesn't give them less than what they, than what they can handle either. But he just handles it out, hands out the responsibility very fairly. That's what he does with us. The things that God has given us in our life, the, the abilities that we have, the resources that He puts at our disposal, we're stewards. We're servants. So we ought to be using the, the resources and the abilities that God has given us 
to serve Him, to work for Him. So much so that by the time He gets to the end, the person that doesn't serve God, that doesn't work for God, is looked as cast out. He's going to be in that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And which leads me to believe this, that it is so natural for a Christian to in their heart want to serve God that if that desire is not there, then the life is not there either. Because you have three different individuals that are handed this responsibility. And the two of them seem anxious. They're excited about the opportunity as you read through this story. When the master comes back, they're excited. Hey, look at what, what I did. You left with me five talents. I got you five more. Hey, you left with me two. I got you two more. There, there's a kind of an enthusiasm. But as you look at this responsibility that's handled, handed out to them, they're anxious about that. You know, I find that to be true among Christians. Christians, you don't have to beg them to serve God. They want to serve God. One of the things that I've really enjoyed and that stood out to me even more in this, this last year or two in our, in our church is just seeing uh, in contacts with, with people in our church, just seeing different ways that they're finding to serve God. They're not all right in front of us here. They're not all happening even in the doors of the church. But people on kind of reaching out into other people's lives and trying to be an impact and wanting to be a help and, and those kinds of things. People finding different ways to, to give and to, to help other people that are in different circumstances. And when they run across people that are having hard times or in a tough situation, the things that want to be done to help in those situations. And that's what happens as a Christian. As a Christian, when we realize what God has done for us, He's delivered us through Jesus Christ, it makes us... It makes us want to serve Him. There's an, there's an excitement about serving Him. It's natural. Within the passage there, the one servant that didn't do anything for Christ just basically went out and buried it, didn't even bother to take the time to go put it in the bank or anything, and that's really the whole point is that he just didn't do anything with it. He had no, no appetite for serving his Master. Well, when he comes up before the Master and he says, I know that you're a hard man and that you... Reap where you didn't sow. And notice right after that, the, the question back to him is that. It is a question. Oh, you knew I was a hard man, basically, did you? And he's misrepresenting the character of the master. The master is somebody that, as he gave out these responsibilities, he knew what the abilities of his servants were. In other words, uh, they were not unknown to him. He knew what they could handle. And he didn't put on them more than they could handle. And he gave them these responsibilities. Not only that, but notice it was a, as he hands out these responsibilities, the whole system really is based on trust. It's based on trust. In fact, that's the word he uses. It says that he, he entrusted them with his property. He entrusted them with things that were his to manage and to take care of and to, to use to make more. And so there's relationship all through this. But the last individual, when he comes up to him, he says, I know you're a hard man. I think the point is, when he responds to him, he's saying, a hard man am I? <laughs> and the person uses it kind of as, as an excuse because of who you are. I, I've done nothing with what you left me. He's kind of putting the blame, shifting it back. And he's making excuses. And there's no gratitude there. There's no enthusiasm for the work. You know what, for an, for an unbeliever, someone that's not genuine in faith, then service toward God, work toward God, is, is not something that's desirable to them. But someone who is genuine in their faith and trusting God, they have a desire to serve God, to work for God. They have a desire to accomplish things for God. So we see within this story, this, this working individuals, we see that there's a responsibility that is handed out that is based, first of all, on trust. 
it also happens within the realm of a relationship because God doesn't give each one any more than that they can handle. But then we also see that not only is there a responsibility that is handed out, but there's a reckoning. There's a reckoning. There's a, there's a judgment. There's a decision time. When Christ comes back, when the Master comes back, they have to give account of the things that they've done with what they were left. And the Bible tells us that that's what we're going to have to do too. Christ is, has gone away. He's up into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's making intercession for us. And while we're left down here, we're supposed to take the resources and the skills and the abilities and things that we have and use them in a way that benefits the kingdom of Christ. And when He comes back, there's going to be this reckoning, a time of judgment. In 1 Corinthians, it says in chapter 3, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself be saved, but only as through the fire. Now, this one's talking specifically to Christians, obviously in this passage, because it says he's saved at the end. But in the passage before that, he says some people, when they're building on a foundation, the Apostle Paul's talking about his ministry as being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He said nobody can lay any foundation different than that. So we have the foundation of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. That's the foundation. He says, but then as we continue our ministry, we're going to build on top of that. He says, now some people as they build, they're going to be building with gold, silver, precious things. Some people if they build, they're going to be building with wood, hay, stubble. He says in the end, when Christ comes back, there's going to be this reckoning time. It's going to be tried by fire. Now what happens when you put fire to gold? It becomes more valuable, becomes more pure, melts down, the impurities come to the top, you skim them off, it becomes more valuable. What happens when you put the fire to silver? Same thing. What happens when you put the fire to wood, hay, stubble, burnt up, it's gone. So the point the Apostle Paul is making is he's saying, look, knowing that that day is coming, what do you want your life to be? Do you want it to be the gold, silver, precious jewels? Or do you want it to be wood, hay, and stubble? Do you want, when you get to the end of your life, do you want to look back and say, man, I've, I've done a lot of things that were important, a lot of things that, that were lasting, a lot of things that have gone on into eternity ahead of me. Like what Jesus told us, don't store up your treasures here, store it up there. Or do we want to get to that point and look back in our life and say, wow, I had a lot of fun, but poof, it's gone, it's over. And here's the really cool thing, there's so much more satisfaction in the eternal things than they're ever thought of being in the temporal things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, he reinforces the same statement. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so we have this time of judgment. We have this reckoning ahead of us that's going to come. And you know what? It's just going to be so awesome if we invest our life properly, if we serve God faithfully throughout this life, coming before Christ and standing before Him and having Him say, well, what did you do with the things that I left? I'm not going to be held accountable if I'm the guy that's given one little bit of ability. I'm not held accountable for what the guy with five could do. I'm held accountable for what I could do. It, it doesn't matter. I don't have to compare myself to anybody else out there that's accomplishing great, huge feats for God. I, I just have to be faithful with what God gives me and do what He wants me to do and serve Him to the best of my ability and try to see His kingdom grow and bear fruit in my life. But when I come before God and He says, you know what, I left you with one little thing, what would you do with it? Boy, it would be nice to say I did something with it, wouldn't it? Boy, it would be nice to, to hear Him say that, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
In fact, that's what, as we look at the, the next uh, item that comes up, we see a reward. There is a, there's a responsibility that's given out. There's a reckoning where we, that we will uh, face and an accountability that we'll face. And there's a reward that's handed out. And what do we see involved in this reward? The first thing we see is praise. We see the master saying to the two, he's like excited about the two. Saying, man, good job. That is awesome. I left you with five. I come back, you, you, you give me ten. I left you with two. You come back, you give me four. That is great. And he praises them for what they're doing. You know, the other day I had a, had a customer and I was, it was a very encouraging day or two for me because I walked in the, I walked in the door and, and, uh, she said, you know, um, I sure like that you write those articles in the paper. She says, you know what? You, you say the things that we need to hear. And I said, well, thank you for that. But to be honest with you, I haven't written an article in quite a while, so I know that I'm kind of failing at that right now. And uh, it's one of those things that's constantly in the back of my mind. You need to get rolling again. Steph is nice enough to keep, reprint old ones, and I'm thankful for that. So the very thing that I feel, one of my discouragements that I'm not getting to it, was one of the things that she used to encourage me, and I was thankful for that. I did some work on her house, and a little bit later, took a look at it, and she says, you know what, you're just a master. That's awesome. You do beautiful work. Well, I also know that if it wasn't for... Uh, as busy as our schedule is this year and everything else that I didn't get to that work as, as soon as they were hoping for. And I, I would have liked to have gotten there earlier too, but with the way things worked out, I just couldn't get there. And so there's another thing that I've been kind of bugged about that I feel like I'm letting people down that I'm not getting the projects fast enough, but there's just so many of them, you just can't. And so one of the other things that I was feeling a little bit lesser about, she turned it around and used it to be an encouragement. And she even said, well, doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> Yeah, it does. Thank you. Well, can you imagine what it's going to feel like when we stand before Christ, the one that we've strived to live our life for, and he says, good job. You know, we tend to look at the things, what am I failing at? What am I falling down about? What am I, what am I dropping that needs to be picked up? What am I? And Jesus says, good job. That would be an awesome experience. I want that experience. Well, not only do we see that, but there's not only is there praise, there's also promotion. You know, heaven isn't going to be us sitting around on clouds playing harps. I think that's left to the angels maybe if they get to do it, if anybody is. But uh, it's not going to be us sitting around and says, he's, you had uh, this kind of responsibility. You've shown yourself to be great. I'm going to give you this much more responsibility. You were faithful over a little bit. I'm going to entrust you now with much. It started with the master entrusting these people with his property. That relationship of trust is growing. And he says, you know what, you could, you could do this. You're ready for the next thing. I'm going to give you the next bit of responsibility. And so we get promoted in this as well. And then lastly, we also get, I didn't even know what to label this. And no, it's not just because I couldn't think of a word that started with P. The last thing he says, enter into the joy of your master. I thought, what exactly? I'm not even sure what all that entails. Except for I know that the fact that it's us going into his kingdom, celebrating this eternal kingdom with him, uh, under the rewards we have praise, we have, we have promotion that he gives us, some more responsibility deeper in this trust, relationship of trust with him. And then lastly, just this joy. The only thing I could really think of is a satisfaction. Entering into that joy of your master as you go into that being just deeply satisfied. A deeply joyous moment, and not just a moment, but even on into eternity as we go into that kingdom that he's prepared for us. When we look in the next part of Matthew, Jesus tells the story of the judgment of the nations. He says he's going to gather all the nations before him, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. 
And let's read in verse 33. says, He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, And he does exactly the opposite. Depart from me, because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And here we go back to the same thing again. What is the point? The point is the genuine followers of Jesus Christ would serve him by caring for other people. By caring. They saw people that were naked and they clothed them. They saw people that were hungry and thirsty and they fed them and gave them drink. They saw people in need and they responded. Now, specifically what it's talking about is helping the Jewish people during the time of tribulation when the Antichrist is trying to destroy them. It would be similar to the Underground Railroad when Christians were trying to protect slaves that were on the run and get them up north where they would be free. It would be similar to believers that would help uh, the Jewish people during the days of Hitler and try to get them off to safety, risking their own safety and their own necks to help them as well. But the point stands that he's making here, it can apply to all time, that Jesus is going to say to these people, you were, you were there, you served, you lovingly served these other people that had these needs. So enter into the kingdom. And what is the response? There was the response of the people, the sheep, the genuine believers, was, what did I do? It's kind of like the, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing kind of a thing. The, they're going about serving these people. They're risking their own health at times to serve these people, their own safety. And they're serving in this way. And they're not even really recognizing that they're doing anything extraordinary. Why? Because it's just become part of their, part of their nature to do it. That's what is with us when we genuinely believe. That's why in 1 John he'll say, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. Because that can't mix. You can't love God and hate your brother at the same time. It's incompatible. When we get the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts, it makes us lovingly respond to other people and be caring and concerned about other people as well. It, it creates compassion in our hearts. I think in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16-18, through 18, it says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he says, we know love because of Him. Because He laid down His life. That's how we know love. Because God acted first. He moved first to lay down His life for us. That's love. And he said, but then, it doesn't stay there. We also know because of that, we just know that we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. That we ought to, that we ought to love. When we experience the love of Christ, it makes us want to turn and love other people. Like He loves us. It just, it just, we just know that. And it goes on to say, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so you see, John does the same thing that Jesus is doing here. Is he's recognizing that when we experience the love of Christ, that love is like an overflowing cup. It just it fills us up and overflows onto other people around us. And just as Christ would lay down His life for us, it gives us a natural 
It's not natural to our sinful self, but natural for somebody walking in the Spirit. The fruit of the joy is love. Joy, peace, and goes on with the whole list. But the very first one he mentions is love. For somebody that's being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, that's saved by the love of Christ, that is a natural reaction for us then for our love to flow out of us and onto other people through our actions. So much so that Jesus would say, if you helped in this situation, you're part of the sheep. If you ignored this situation, you're part of the goats. Because it's just... It's just what He puts in us. It's part of that fruit of the Spirit. It's part of the fruitfulness of the changed life that is in Jesus Christ. And so at the judgment, He comes and says, well, let's see who you are. Are you somebody that's waiting for Me? Are you somebody that's working for Me out of love? Are you somebody that's caring for other people? As we strive to follow Christ, these are the things that are in our life. If we're genuine, if we're walking in Him, we're going to walk as He walked. We're going to be anxiously anticipating His return, working as we're waiting, and caring for people in our work.